All right. Scott Geiselhart is my guest today. I am wicked excited to have you here today, Scott. How are you? Doing good. Good, good, good. I know that our paths crossed somewhere in a public safety, mental health chat room. I was immediately drawn to your story based on my passion for helping folks in public safety. You've been extremely vocal about your mental health challenges, but before we even get started on that particular topic, I want folks to get to know you. I want them to know who you are today, who you were in your public safety career. And then I'd love to know how you got started in that public safety career. Okay, thank you. Yeah, back in uh, 94, I moved to a small town, Frazee, Minnesota, 1300 population. I moved from a larger town that was 15 miles away. And I was a mechanic at a dealership. And one of the, one of the head salesmen at the dealership asked if I'd like to join the Frazee Fire Department. That was random. And I never, <laughs> yeah, I never really thought about it. But, you know, being I had background in mechanic skills and he, he said I'd be a good fit. So I put an application in and next thing you know, I'm on the fire department. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was really neat. I mean, it, I, I love helping people. So it, it was a pretty good shoe in. You know, it helped me actually as a person in Frazee, small town, helped me get to know a lot of people yeah. really quick. And how old, and how old were you then? Oh boy, I'm not even sure. That was back in '95, so now I'm four. I'm 50, <laughs> 54 now. So yeah, I don't know All right, so it was it was it was a while ago. Yeah. And is that and is that the uh, fire department that you stayed on for your entire career, or did you bounce around a little bit and land somewhere no, else? I stayed on there for just shy of 24 years. Wow, so that was basically 24 years. Yeah, and and I ended up owning my own repair shop. In that small town, I opened up a small repair shop in '98, auto repair, and yeah, it was it was just it was nice being in a small community because you know you hear the stories, everybody knows everybody's business, but also yeah. you get to know a lot of people pretty well, and and the trust factor, and it was pretty cool. Yeah, I was just gonna say, so opening a win, uh, opening a business is it makes sense because the shifts that firefighters work normally they have a second job to support themselves. So, and the trust factor is these folks are seeing you, but that can also take its toll too, right? I worked in, I, I'm also a firefighter and an EMT, and was the chief dispatcher in the community in which I live in, and I do know that those calls, you know, when somebody calls nine one one and you see a familiar name come up on the screen, or they start off the call with Tracy. You, you know that there's going to be that personal component. Would you agree? Exactly. You know, and that's something that when, when we started, when I got started on the fire department, we didn't have the jaws of life. Okay. And as a mechanic, I quickly, we got some guys in the fire department that were mechanically inclined and, and we decided to get the jaws of life. And, and that's a part that we didn't really put, put any thought to is that not only on the fire scenes, are we going to see stuff, but in an accident scene, when you're seeing somebody's kids, you know, a neighbor's yep. kids or something or your neighbor, you know, really hits home in a small community. Yeah. And then I know like, so I, we probably started in public safety around the same time. And I know there was no mental health stuff there. It was kind of the suck it up buttercup mentality. And one of the things that I've said recently is, you know, as we came on way back then, we didn't see anybody else talking about it. So why would we talk about something that may have, may have been bothering us? Right. Yeah. And we always had the old, older firefighters that, you know, they tell us stories about stuff and, you know, not really go into too much detail, but it would always be kind of on a, you know, and, and I don't mean joking, but like the dark humor side, we'd always right. say something that would not bring us down, you know, and, and that man up, man up attitude of it, it, it was hurting, but let's not admit it because we're men or mom, right. you know. 
Right. So my good friend, Carl Waggett uh, from PTSD Bunker Gear for Your Brain, I will never forget what he said on my podcast a few episodes back. He said the tradition of the fire department was just, you know, you didn't talk about it. You just kind of did what you did. And then without even missing a beat, he said tradition is peer pressure from dead people. Yeah. And I just thought that was hilarious. Right. Because we have this mentality that that we're just supposed to act a certain way or. Um, and one that I did last week with that peer support couple, we talked about how we maybe we were told about the things that we should be looking for, but we were told about what could happen, but we didn't, we weren't told that it's not good to kind of stay there. Right. Like that doesn't even make sense to me. It, it's, it was this mindset shift that we were, we were realizing that, oh, okay. So I could have this, I could have that, I could have this. So that's normal. Yeah. Well, and, and the thing is, I'm not going to walk up to another first responder and say, Hey, I'm having nightmares or I'm drinking a lot right. more than I used to be. And, and my girlfriend's yelling, you know, telling me I'm yelling at them all the time and I've changed, you know, I'm not going to lock up and say that or right, I right. Know if I can handle this anymore until you get to that breaking point where I don't think, I, I don't think this is for me anymore and I'm going to leave. And right. So I I'm going to assume um, because we are where we are. Um, so what, what is it that you're doing today? Because I know you're not still in the fire service. So let's talk about what you're doing today. And then we're going to kind of lead into uh, your story. Well, I just, I gave up my day job, which sounds kind of funny, but I yeah, used to work in, scary. yeah, I used to work in mental health and mental health crisis stabilization. Um, I was a peer support specialist and also, uh, I made it a mental health practitioner through experience, not through going to college for it. I, yep. I worked the hours to do that. And as a peer support specialist, I'm also can share my story a little bit with the clients and help them understand it's okay not to be okay. And that there's hope. Yeah. You can't just say, and I say that all the time, it's okay to, to not be okay, but you just can't stay yeah, there. I, mean, I get a lot of clients that look at me and say, wow, you were, you, you, you that can't be, you know, you, you, you're, right. you're helping people now. And and yeah, now I get to go around the country and speak about this. And, and I love it. I mean, I just love helping other people in a whole different way. Instead of cutting them out, using the jaws of life. Somebody told me that instead of the jaws of life, you're using your own jaws and your own voice yep. to help others. It's, it's amazing, isn't it? When you told, when, when I, I know that when you posted that you took that leap of faith to make this a full-time career, I, I'm pretty sure I know I, I know I posted something like it's amazing, like welcome, because I did the same thing a little over a year ago. I jumped from a very secure, good paying job that I loved to make it my mission to train not only telecommunicators and like how to do their job more effectively, uh, but to also deal with the mental health aspects of it and to be able to live my truth and do exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. It, it is nothing short of amazing. So, so you, how long ago did you leave your position in the fire service? Uh, in the fire service was about three years ago. Okay. And I know that we discussed this before. I said, is there any topic that's off limits? And you're like, absolutely not. And, and I know that, and it's important that you, you share it all the good, the bad, the ugly, um, the icky, whatever it is. What was the driving point where you knew that it was, it was time to go from, from I'm assuming the job that you love to I do. Just, I was getting too many calls and too many people want to talk during the day. And I, you know, I was working during the day and I couldn't return the calls. And I couldn't be there for people. And in my speech, people were asking me to speak and I couldn't get back to them in time. And with the emails, then by the time I was off work, they were off work and I didn't want to bother them in the evenings. And, and man, since I've made the leap, it's incredible. I mean, I just make a phone call and people are like, or they make a phone call to me and I'm, wow, how'd you guys know? I'll, you know, 
yeah. starting to full time when my calendar's filling up fast. It is. It is. And and it's it's almost like that old adage, be careful what you wish for, you just might get it all. I think Chris Daughtry for for that. Uh he has a song that says that. And I was like, man, is he right? He he sang it the other day at a concert. And I was like, damn, he's right. Like, just be careful what you wish for. And and it's a different where I think I think what I've been saying lately is we are, and I say me, you, and, and several others in, in the space is we are making a different kind of difference. Yeah. We're making a different, different kind of difference. So you have had your battle with PTSD and mental health issues. You have, your battle was different than mine. It's not, it's not that it was worse than mine. It's not that it was better than mine. We don't refer to it as that. It's just your journey through PTSD and mental health was, it just looked very different than mine. And a lot of folks know my story. So I'm going to not tell that if they want to hear it, they can go back in previous episodes, um, piece it all back together. But I want to talk about yours specifically. Like, do you want to pick a place where you think is the most pertinent place to kind of start and let's move okay. forward. Yeah. Cause like I said, I got on the fire department when in 95 and became a captain, you know, not too far down the road after that and engineer. And I was working on all the trucks and taking care of the jaws of life and the rescue unit. And I had a, had a shop that was right across from the liquor store. And I noticed that I started going across the street to the liquor store and having, having drinks after work. And I stayed there longer and longer. And, and I, I just didn't want to go home to my two sons and my girlfriend. And I started having the nightmares, the flashbacks. Then about 2010, I uh, I built a brand new shop and it was amazing. I mean, it was like, man, I'm really rolling in the dough now. You know, I'm making good money and everything's going good. But I still had this secret and all this, the nightmares and the anger. Oh my God, the anger got horrible. I mean, I, I, I'd be nicest guy in the world to people, but then I'd turn around and take it out on my kids and nothing right. that they did. And I couldn't yep. stop it. I didn't understand that part. But yeah, once I built the shop and, and the thing is in between that time, I, I was with some people and they partied all night long and I'd go to sleep early and I'm like, well, what the hell are you guys doing this? And they introduced me to math and I didn't think nothing of it. You know, I'll do a little math here, you know, on a weekend, once a month, it's like no big deal. I'm just staying up all night. And, um, you know, next thing here, I am assistant chief actually running some scenes and, and, you know, again, I didn't think nothing of it because I didn't have meth in my system. However, once I built the shop and I had so much more stress and, and everything else from my, my personal life was catching up to me, the drug use that I started to use more and I started drinking more. I started isolating at my shop, working down there, always fixing something or improving something and staying away from my family. And it was confusing because I didn't know what was going on. 2012, my girlfriend had enough. She left me, took our two sons with her and I sat with an empty house. So there was no reason to go home anymore. And I started to do a lot of, a lot of math. In my mind, the way to take care of my nightmares, so I wouldn't have my nightmares, was not go to sleep. So gotcha. I started doing a lot of meth. And I mean, I was doing a line of, line of hour, nothing to it, you know, and I stayed awake. You know, I justified it because I could work longer, work more hours, have more income. I justified that pays for the meth. So I'm not hurting anybody. It's not like I'm stealing, right. you know, but it doesn't work as an assistant chief. And I knew that. So I dropped down from assistant chief down to a red helmet, down to a yellow helmet, down to a firefighter that wasn't making any calls, um, wasn't making any trainings. Um, just the, you know, the benefits I wasn't making it to the fundraisers, the meetings, and I just fell off the radar. And I had the excuse that I was so busy at work that this is how my life was, you know, and I'm trying to hang on to the fire department, but at the same time, I hated it for some reason in my heart. My heart wasn't there anymore. Right. Because it now becomes, it now becomes a part of what's causing this, 
yeah, the triggers were all around me. You know, every time I went on a call, I mean, I remember, you know, sometimes we go 20, 30 miles to get to a call. I remember just getting in a daze, looking out the window at night at the red lights flashing off the highway. And it just, wow, it, it messed with me and all the memories were coming back. But I mean, I was like, what are we going to see on this next one? Am I going to be able to handle this? And right. um, I did that for two years. I pretty much stayed awake for two years. And, uh, and same thing happened when I went and seen my kids and my ex-girlfriend, I'd get mad and not understand where the anger was coming from. But 2014, July, 2014, I went over to their apartment again, I exploded for no reason, went back to my shop and sat down at my desk in my office and reached in the drawer and pulled out my 44 Magnum revolver, put it to my head and I pulled the trigger. I said, enough is enough. I got to stop myself. And the gun, the hammer came down and the gun clicked. And it, it really shocked me because I chose that weapon because it was going to do the job. And right. it wasn't going to be half-assed. It was going to be final. And when it clicked, which it's never done before, I I was just shocked. I couldn't believe what I just did. I, I'm like, what? How low have I gotten? I mean, why did I do that? And, you know, after all the confusion, I typed on the keyboard. I did a Google search on nightmares, flashbacks, angers, drugs, and hit enter on a Google search. And PTSD lit the screen up. And I'm like, oh, that's yeah. not right. So did- so, so did you, were you not thinking that you were dealing with PTSD? Did you, did, you just didn't know what it was? I thought PTSD was a military thing. How could I have it? I've never been in the Right, military. right. That's a huge, that's an amazing concept right there. You are, you are so right. And that's what so many people believe. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're looking at 2014. It wasn't talked about like it is now. It's getting so much better. But yep. when I opened up the mail site on the Google search, it's like, oh my gosh, you know, right there. First line, high risk. Uh, military and first responders, top of the line. It's like, are you kidding me? And then the symptoms, I had them. I'm like, oh my God, this is, you know, it it was weird because I got to the therapies and it was things I could do. And, and it was like, almost it was a relief. I was mad at, you know, the fire service for not talking about PTSD, but at the same time it was a relief because there it is. I got PTSD. I don't have a split personality. I'm not crazy. And there's help. So after that, it was just a matter of reaching out and it took 18 phone calls. And on the last phone call, finally, somebody answered that was there for me and was listening. And they helped me find a therapist. And it was absolutely amazing. From there, I did EMDR. Oh, life-saving for me too, brother. Man, it's just, I mean, I couldn't believe it. A month later, I came out smiling, felt like I was 100 pounds lighter. And I felt like I was 18 years old. And was that, was that your, so through that process, did you end up having to go to rehab for the meth addiction or was that part of the process in EMDR helped with yeah, that? Yeah. I mean, it, there's a combination. I reached out to my pastor the same time I was going through therapy. So okay. I had two, you know, I was getting blasted from two sides, two good blasts. You know, my faith was being rebuilt and also the EMDR was helping me deal with all this stuff that I had in my, my backpack. And after the first session, of EMDR, I walked away from meth all by myself. I mean, it was a wow. week, it was a week of hell, but I, you know, I understood what I was up against and the meth wasn't going to be helping me. You know, it's, I accepted it. You know, I accepted, I had PTSD. I accepted, I have to get therapy. My, my other life, you know, when I pulled that trigger, I, I, that was it. I mean, I, that was a whole different lifestyle and I didn't want to die anymore. Because I think, and I think, oh, so much, so much, so much. Like my heart is racing as you're talking. I, it's, it's not often that I'm speechless and and I am even just in a, in a short amount of time. So first of all, kudos, kudos to you for, for recognizing that you needed help after that. Cause it would have been very easy for somebody to, to pull the trigger again. 
you know, I'm glad, I'm glad that we're having this conversation here right now, but the EMDR is I've explained how I feel about it and how I experience it. Would you be willing to share your thoughts and experience, like how it made you feel even just in a short period of time? And I'm just curious. So, so just for folks that are not aware of what EMDR is, it is eye movement desensitization reprocessing. I talk about it at nauseum sometimes, but it is, it is truly a life-saving treatment for many. Um, it is not the end all be all, but it is by far one of the, one of the most profound treatments for PTSD and mental health issues. And the way there's two ways I know that you can do it. You can either do it with eye movement. So bilateral stimulation of eye movement. But for me, somebody who has ADHD, I had a challenge and I couldn't do the eye movement. I had to have two paddles, one in each hand that kind of vibrated back and forth. Which which style did you do? I had both uh, a light bar and then I had vibrating pads on my legs that I put my hands on. Okay. Okay. So there's definitely, it's, it's a matter of whatever it is, whatever the magic juju is, it basically stimulates one side of the body, then the other, then the other, then the other, while you are thinking about or speaking about, I think about it. I don't speak about it. How, how did you, did you think about it or did you speak about I it? I spoke about it and it was, it was really okay. weird because when they, when I first started, I mean, I had less, less than 24 hours before my appointment, before I made the appointment. I made the appointment next morning at eight o'clock. I went to my first one where the first two, I just talked and yeah. I was still in denial about the fire service causing this, you know, what I yeah. not them causing it, but what I seen on the scenes, you know, having an effect on me because I was supposed to be this macho strong guy, you know, I, yeah. I blame ex-girlfriends because I was numb. I didn't have any feelings. I couldn't love anymore. And I felt ashamed because I, I didn't love my sons the way I really, I didn't have a heart. So when I was talking about that. And then we started the light session, which actually was the last time I did math right before that. Um, we did the light session and we started talking about what we talked about with girls. And it's like, okay, which girlfriend, you know, I went into some of the relationships and started and tried to. And and all of a sudden, like, no, this isn't it. I said, I, these, these car accidents, you know, I mean, why, why? You know, right. why couldn't we save them? And it went down a whole different avenue for me. I wasn't honest with the therapist and that was a big mistake on my part, but it it still came out. And it was like, when I found out about EMDR, I Googled it like I did PTSD. <laughs> I, mean, I had all the time in the world. I wasn't sleeping. And I'm looking at this stuff. It's like, EMDR, this is, this is witchcraft. This is like, they're going to hypnotize <laughs> me. And I don't want none of this stuff coming out. My God, they're going to find out about all my secrets. Yeah. Yeah. And, it's and, and it, and it, and it, do, and it does happen. I mean, there was a time. So again, I thought about my stuff because I had gone to talk therapy like a million times and yes, there were therapists that helped, but then there were times that it was like, you know what? I just don't want to talk about it anymore. I just don't want to talk about it because I didn't feel like there was any resolve. I would just talk about it. Then I would get agitated and then I would leave and I would have nothing. So when I went into Caroline, my therapist, I said, look, I'm coming in hot. Like, I don't want to talk about it anymore. I want to establish this EMDR thing. This is what I want to do. I need to see if it works because I'm not in a good place. I had a method. I had a means and, and a moment. And that moment, just like you, it was it was derailed by by another situation. And for for me to do it the first time, once we finally got to that place, I remember leaving there going, okay, did this thing work? Like, how do I, how do I know this thing worked? And I started thinking about the thing that we processed, uh, which was my ex, my, my previous manager uh, who had kind of started the whole thing for me. And I started thinking about him and I felt nothing like nothing. Like there was no, there was no anxiety. There was no fear. There was no panic. There was no nothing. And I'm like, all right, I don't, I don't know about this. 
And then I, I Googled his picture and there was nothing. I felt nothing. It wasn't that I forgot about him. I just, I didn't feel that same fear and panic that I felt that day. Would you agree that that's kind of similar to what you were feeling? Yeah, it didn't own my thoughts. You know, I was able to think for myself and, and I put it away. And that's where yeah. the, that's where the title of my presentation comes out is seeing in color again, because after that first session, driving back the hour to get home, um, I went by a sunflower field on the side of the road that I swear to God was not there when I drove there. And all the <laughs> in August and, and all the trees and all the colors. And I'm like, where did this world come from? I couldn't see colors before. I mean, I could tell you what color something was, but it was, it was kind of gray and dark and black and white. My life sucked. I mean, that's what it felt like. It felt like I didn't have a chance. I mean, I was addicted to meth and I, I didn't think I'd ever break that. And here I am seeing clouds for the first time in a long time. I mean, wow. be able to see the blue skies and the white puffy clouds and then the sunflower field that, oh my God. I saw that was the title of your session, seeing in color again. And, and I felt that like, cause, because I feel like when we're in a, a place of dealing with PTSD and mental health issues is that you, that's the best way to describe it is that there is nothing stimulating enough around you. There's nothing that looks beautiful. There is nothing that is engaging. You, you are just, you're just yeah. there. And, and after the therapy, I mean, I was getting a, a high better than any meth high I ever had or being drunk. I was getting a high out of just laying on a picnic table, looking up at the sky or just being out in nature or, or even going out places. I mean, I could see people's faces and yeah. it was, it was like the blinders were off. It was, I felt like a brand new, like a baby. Well, and those people, and those people weren't the boogeyman either, because I know for me, it was like, everybody was going to hurt me. <laughs> everybody. It didn't matter who you were. I, if somebody was going to, if somebody was going to hurt me. So I was on tilt, like. All the yep. time. I mean, the negativity was out of my brain and I wasn't on guard all the time. So I could let the positives in. And it was, it was, uh, it was a, a beautiful thing. I mean, I started using words like awesome and beautiful. And I'd, I'd walk up to girls and just, I'd, I mean, I don't know where it came from. I just walk up to them and say, my God, you're beautiful. You know, and I'm like, Scott, you that's great. Yeah. <laughs> and people would walk up to me and say, man, you're giving off this energy. You're sitting here smiling and and some of my friends were like, yeah, something's up with you. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, now they're like, what do you want? And you're like, nothing, nothing. I'm on nothing. I, I am, I am on nothing. I am high on life. Right. Yeah. It's such a cliche, but, but you were, and that's really cool. Speaking of awesome and beautiful, I cannot have you on here and not talk about that gorgeous animal that you have in your house. And before the end of this podcast, I need to see him. Uh, but please tell me about Sarge, your German Shepherd, your therapy dog. He's also uh, celebrating his seventh birthday today. That, that's oh, he's gorgeous. He picked out a date because we don't know when he was born. But yeah, he's a yep. he's not a purebred German Shepherd, but he is a service dog, and he's been with me as a service dog for probably about four years now. Okay, and that was another part where I got this puppy. He was a rescue and. I didn't want a German Shepherd. I wanted a lab, something I could go hunting with. And yep. this little guy was under a car for a few days and wouldn't come out and don't know a whole lot about his past. But my son sat down next to the car and I went out and I was watching these German Shepherds be, be trained. And, and I'm looking at him. I was like, I don't want a German Shepherd. You can't hunt with him. And I looked back about five minutes later, here Sarge comes off from underneath the car for the first time in three, four days and sits on my son's lap. And I'm like, no way. Right. So, I mean, yeah, it was either I leave my son there or I bring Sarge with. 
<laughs> so um, I'm thinking by this time you're actually, you know, enjoying your family's company. So bringing the child with you was probably the best, best solution. Yeah. Um, but he is, and, and I will tell you, you know, my dog Sander, my, my previous dog Snickers who passed away, they are not trained service dogs, but even just as a pet who gives you 100% of them, it helps in this journey, you know, tenfold. So did, did Sarge have formal training as a service dog or has he just assumed the responsibility because he is that smart and he does exactly what you need him to well, do? Well, when we, we, I first got him from that trainer. So they helped me start training him, which was huge, right? As a puppy. And yep. then um, they ended up, the training group ended up breaking up. So for a while he was, he was pretty much trained, but we're not certified. Gotcha. And so, you know, I couldn't put, I, I'm not going to put a fake service dog vest on him and mm -hmm. misuse him like that. So I started speaking a lot more and I had to put them, have people watch them. And, and it got to be where a lot of people were watching them and it just didn't feel right. So I actually thought right. about giving them up and I was looking for somebody that had a good home, a good yard that would maybe take them. Cause I didn't feel like I was giving them a good house, a good, a good loving home. And um, the fire department found out about it and some other people found out about it and they reached out to Patriot Assistance Dogs in Detroit Lakes, Minnesota, and they stepped forward and helped me get them certified a week, you know, oh. a week training. Wow. That is amazing. Yeah. That is so freaking cool. That, yeah. is, that is, that is beyond cool. Yeah. And normally he has the run of the house, but when I do podcasts and when I speak, he can, he's upstairs in the bedroom with my girlfriend now and he's kind of locked up there because otherwise he'd be biting at my fingers and trying to drag me outside because he doesn't like me talking about he doesn't, he can feel me going back. Of course he can. Of course he can. That, that's what he's trained to do. He doesn't want you, even though you're talking about it and you sound confident and I can see you, they can't see you. You know, you, you seem comfortable in speaking about it, but we're not comfortable. We may sound conflict confident, but I know that when, when I have conversations about my story and, and share that it, it takes a lot out of you. Right. But I do want you to answer this question for me. I know there's a lot of folks out there that, that want to share their story. And, and I accidentally shared my story. I filled in for a speaker at a conference when I was with my previous company and I was there to speak on behalf of Rapid SOS, but there was an opening in the schedule. Somebody had to cancel last minute and it was about stress. And I had talked about stress forever, uh, but what I hadn't done yet is I hadn't shared my story. There was a lot of people that had no idea what was going on with me behind the scenes. They just knew I was not happy with what was going on at work. They didn't, they didn't know the, the magnitude of what was going through my head every day and what I was dealing with at home. They only saw me out, you know, in the world, uh, but I accidentally shared my story and it was, it was hard. It was, it was cathartic. It was emotional. And I had a whole bunch of people come up after me and tell me that I was telling their story. And what I did notice is that the more and more that I submitted to tell my story, it helped me in my healing. Would you agree with that? Uh, yes. But at the same time, you also have to have them sports in place and have to have that plan for self-care afterwards. Yes. Because it, it drains you mentally. I mean, it's exhausting. It'll physically just, you know, you'll just want to go to sleep sometimes and you have to have that support in place. And, and the more you do it, the better off, it, the easier it gets. You know, yeah. It's, less, it's kind of like EMDR. And like with me, I get up there and speak and I just, I just let it rip. I don't, I never get nervous. I've never gotten nervous, but I get out the stage. It's like, oh my gosh, did I talk about this? Did I talk about this? Like, yeah, you went over all that. It's like, I don't want right. to. Right. I mean, it just went up there and let it rip. Yeah. And it, and it changes lives. So if, if there's somebody out there that wants to submit 
to a conference, whether it's police, fire, EMS, because I have a lot of folks, you know, all different disciplines that listen to the podcast um, of the foundation of 911, because that's where, you know, my my passion was in, in public safety, but I'm also a firefighter and an EMT. But if there's somebody out there that that wants to share their story, that wants to, you know, submit for a conference to speak on their story and their journey, but they're afraid. What would you tell um, them? Definitely practice, you know, start out with your own department, start out with a neighboring department, build up to it. Don't, you don't want to have a big conference as your first one. Gotcha. Um, and again, have your support in place, you know, have somebody that you can, that has their calendar open. So after you're done speaking, you can go and debrief with them. Yeah. Yeah, I would I would usually debrief at the bar. And I know that isn't a great thing, but mm -hmm. those were my people, right? Yeah. So reasonably, reasonably, just for me, my charge is to be around people. That's who I am. But some people, you have to know who you are. If you're a people, I do a lot with DISC and the human behavior model, and I am an extroverted people person by nature. Um, so I recharge by being around people. There are others that are introverted. And that they don't love being around people. So you have to know who you are to know what is going to be able to help decompress you for yep. sure. And that's that's a lot about what I do for self-care afterwards. I allow myself to go up to the room, whatever, at this conference to get away for half an hour after I get done talking with everybody. Take a breather. But that's it. Half an hour and you get your, get back your butt back down there. Because if I don't, then I'll start wanting to isolate or something. And I'm, I'm aware yep. of that. So that's the important thing is under, understanding yourself and just kind of self-evaluate yourself when you get into a, a spot, what started that and what could have you done? Even if it's going yep. for the warm shower, like you say, I love socializing. I go down and sit at the bar. I go down and walk the halls. That's the most important part of when I speak. I, I speak, I want to speak, you know, early in the conference. I want to yep. sit there the entire conference. And I've had more yep. conversations in stairwells of hotels with players that don't want to be seen talking to with me because they might think, oh my God, you're talking to Scott, you okay? It's like, it's not about that. Maybe they want to talk about a peer program or something like that. But I have had right. player fighters that have told me they're suicidal. And in fact, a couple of them said that was the last conference they were going to, you know? Yep. So, I mean, it's, it's important for us to be there, but I also have, you know, like I say, my sport. So when something like that happens, I debrief and I don't have to give names or anything. I keep everything confidential, but that's part of processing for me also. And I think it is really important to know. So there were places where I would just get, oh, like I, I remember one time we had we had received an award. Um, I run an explorer program for fire and EMS, and we won an award, myself and the four other instructors, my husband being one of them. And we came back from the award ceremony and it was an amazing day. Like, like it was an amazing day. There is no question about it. And when we got back home, there was somewhere along the day, there was, there was a trigger for me. And I knew it was a trigger because I wanted to rip my husband's face off. And unfortunately he, he did nothing wrong. He did absolutely nothing wrong. He is the most kind, generous, gentle person. He is calm. He is the calm in my chaos. And he was chewing or he was eating watermelon next to me. And it sounded like he was eating a bucket of bolts. And I literally like looked at him with this look of disgust, like, what are you eating? And, and I just felt this rage from him chewing near me. And I was like, okay, something's up. And I texted my therapist and I asked if she had an appointment. She actually had a cancellation that night. So at 7 PM, I'm hoofing to the therapist. She's like, what's up? I'm like, I don't know. I'm like, there was something 
throughout the day. And we literally processed the entire day. And I realized, I realized where it was and, and I'm not going to share what it was just because it was, it was really personal and, and private. Um, but it had nothing to do with my husband. It had, it had nothing to do with my life at that moment. It was a past life. And, and I was like, oh my, oh my God, that, that's it. Like that is literally it. And I could feel when we processed the day, I could feel the difference between getting up to that moment and how I felt after that moment. And it was crazy. It's magic. It's hocus pocus. You know, and, and that's the difference is being able to understand that, you know, where before we just ignore the triggers or stuff, stuff in our backpack and go, you know, myself, I'd go drink or do another line or I, this isn't going to, I tell myself, this isn't going to affect me. This isn't real. You know, and it, it was, it was really messing me up can't run from it for, you know, it'll keep, keep creeping up on you till you deal with it. Yeah. So at what point, cause, cause I do another thing I wanted to talk to you about that you mentioned earlier is, you know, how you were treating your family, how you were living in that, in that part of your world. How is your relationship with your sons? Today? It's, it's so much better. I mean, they call me and we, you know, lately we haven't for the last week or so, but normally, you know, we talk every week or a couple of times, a couple, three times a week. And and when they're going through things, they'll call me and bounce them off me. And, and, or if they have anything about mental health, they'll call and ask me about it. It's just like, well, these, they're, it's like, they're proactive. It's so cool to Love see. Love it. You know, Love they, it. Now, are they in public safety at all? Or did they choose different paths? Yeah, no, they choose, uh, they chose a lot different paths. Um, one's a mechanic, just like I was. Okay. Um, he's, he's in that now. And then the other one's a software engineer. So he's, he's doing really well for himself. And yeah, it's, they're, they're, pretty much two opposites, but they get along good. And the one just turned 21 this month. So that was fun. They, they went out together and, and yeah. I, re I remember when I told my family, like, obviously my husband knew that I was struggling. He knew I was at the place I was in with my boss and my work and things were just piling on. And, and I think a lot of times folks just assume like, okay, you're just stressed, right? Like they get that you're stressed, but the best thing that I ever did was when I sat down and explained to my family the thoughts that I was having and the feelings of not being worthy of being here and that the world would be a better place without me here because apparently I caused so many problems. And, and it's just an unrealistic mindset when I think about that now. I truly feel that the best thing I ever did through this whole process was to tell them because then I had their support when I needed to get the help that I yeah. needed. My younger son, it was, it was weird because I was pushing everybody out of my life because I knew I was going to kill myself. I knew I wasn't going to be around long. And I was trying to push everybody out of my life. And my younger son, he was like a booger. I just couldn't get rid of him. And he just stuck to me. And after my suicide attempt that happened in July, later that fall when we we're Christmas shopping or that winter, um, I remember looking over at him and he knew everything right away about everything. And yeah. I told him, I said, man, I am so glad that gun didn't go off. And he looked at me and he goes, dad, the gun did go off and it killed the bad right. dad. Oh, I love that. That kid's wise beyond his years. And I'm like, holy buckets till he said that. It's like, man, so you're really seeing the change. I'm really doing this. You know, it's like, wow. And, and it's that is so powerful. Yeah, it was, it was, it just, it floored me. I couldn't believe that he said that at 13 years old, but it made so much sense. And, and same with the fire department, you know, you know, there was some that were like, well, Scott's got PTSD. They, you know, the education wasn't there. And yeah. the other ones were like, well, look at him. Holy buckets. He's smiling. He's not the jerk he was before, you know, he's not the naysayer or the negative guy in the fire department. He's out there with a smile on his face and doing things. And, you know, I mean, so 
it sounds like your department was supportive and and receptive to what you were going through. Was it always like that? I mean, not that I'm asking you to air any dirty laundry, but was it always like that? Because I know that there are some folks that I know that are struggling, that their their agencies are just not supportive. And I'm trying to find folks that have pushed through the non-supportive but I'll be wicked happy if yours was really supportive. They were. I mean, at, at first, it, you know, not all of them were on board. And actually, I kind of felt like I had to plague because I did go in and talk to them about it. And I said, I got to take a leave of absence. And I said, you know, come take me hunting, take me fishing. I'm still, you know, I'm still the same person. It's just I'm, I'm getting help and I got to take a step back right now. And just yeah. don't leave me alone because I need you guys. And, right. you know, a few of them did reach out and a few of them came around to the shop once in a while. But for the most part, I felt empty. But at the same time, there's nothing that I'm saying against them because mental health scares people. It but does understand it and or have ever been around somebody with mental health and and people are busy, too. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things that I had to learn is my emotions. So I'm a very emotional person. Uh, again, just who I am in my nature. I lead first with emotions. I react. I don't respond to things. So I was able to really learn how to kind of reel that back. But I also know that there were situations that I, I caused stress for other people, whether it was an emotional outburst of anger or sadness or being emotional. And not everybody loves people that are emotional. So for me, it was important and to understand, you know, how to keep things in check and not get to that place. And, and I've lost friends. I've, I've lost a lot of friends and I've even had some friends who I've lost that have still said to this day, I didn't know how to deal with you. And, you know, and it's like, okay, that that's okay. If I'm too much for you, that's absolutely fine. There's for, for every person I'm too much for, there's 10 others that would want to be around the good me right? Like, like if you can't go through the, the stuff, maybe you're not supposed to be there. Right. And, and I think that's hard in the moment is, is you don't want to be around anybody, but you don't want to be alone yeah. either. And that's, that's something I've really got to watch is I, I can't live in the past. You know, I, I've done things. I've yelled at my kids. I've called them names. I've said things to them that I would never dream about saying no. I mean, it's, it's yeah. like, it was horrible. And I, yeah. I catch myself beating myself up over that. And it's like, Scott, that was, I, I keep thinking of what my son said. That was the bad dad. Don't yeah. let that own you. Don't go in that direction. Take a different route. Let's go the other direction because we're not that person anymore. And the anger has gone. The nightmares are gone. The flashback's gone. The meth is definitely gone. I have no craving. Yeah. And that's, and again, that's, that's EMDR. EMDR, I, I describe it as separating the emotional charge from the event, whatever the event is. Sometimes you don't even know what the event is. Sometimes it's 12 events. Yeah. I had a, I had a sentence that was triggering me and it had happened like three times in one week to the point where I almost flipped a table at a meeting for the third person that said it. And, and I knew I'm like, well, got to get, got to get that fixed. Not sure where that came from, but going through EMDR allows you to figure out what the issue is. Because even if you're starting to go down the path, you're like, all right, I think it's here, but in reality, it wasn't there. It was, it was 10 times yeah. ago. Yep. May have, it may have been similar. Yep. And in public safety, that's part of the issue because while the call may not be the same, there might be similarities. Yeah, exactly. And, and the thing is, they talk about, you know, reaching out for help or not reaching out for help necessarily as much as having PTSD is a weakness. And it's not. Oh, so not. It, it, it's so, I mean, it, it could happen to anybody. And in, in, in fact, the ones that cross their arms and, and get this negative stance when I start speaking, most of the time have the largest tears in their eyes when I'm done because they can relate with what I'm talking about. And finally, yeah. you know, it broke through to them that it's okay. You know, you don't have to be this tough, 
big, tough firefighter that doesn't show any weaknesses. It's no different than any first responder. The ones that reach out for help seem to be criticized where the ones that don't reach out for help that are going through a lot more and probably have PTSD that don't reach out for help, they're the loose cannons we really got to watch out for. Right. We have to somehow reach. I had a class. So I've, I've taught at this point in the last three weeks, I've taught almost nine, uh, 900. <laughs> Oops. In the last three weeks, I've taught about 240 telecommunicators. And in each one of those classes, I shared parts of my story, a couple of the classes, a little bit more in detail, depending on what the class was. And in that particular class, I always say to them, this is going to be hard for you to hear. Um, it's going to be hard for some of you to hear. I'm going to tell some of you, some of this is going to be your story or maybe your story, but please stay, just, just stay. If your heart rate's a little elevated, if your respiratory rate is going up, if the leg starts tapping, that, that means that I want you to stay because I want to give you this, the, the solutions that I found that, that might be helpful for you or give you recommendations for some other things that might help. And for the first time ever, I had somebody leave the class. And they had mentioned to their director that it was it was too much that I had hit uh, too close to home on many aspects. And I was I was devastated. I I was devastated. I was worried. I was worried that that person is not going to have the resources that they need to get the help that they need. Um, And I was told afterwards that they made an appointment to go to go get the help that they needed. So they left. I wish they had stayed. But if it was out of those 240 dispatchers that I that I spoke to over the last three weeks, if I made a difference in that one person's life, then I did exactly what I was supposed to do. Yeah. Do you feel that when you know that you made a difference? What does that feel like? For yeah, you? I mean, you can see it in their eyes. And, you know, I used to t- I used to tell people would come up and say, man, you own the whole audience. Everybody was listening. They were glued to you. It's like now they were looking at yeah. their cell phones and people are like, Scott. They were not looking at the cell phone. <laughs> they couldn't make eye contact with you. There was tears rolling right. in your cheeks. I mean, they get it. They've been there or they are there now or somebody they love is there. And, and they just can't wait to get out of the room and start the process. Yeah. Yep. I mean, and I always have, you know, chaplains or peer support or somebody watching the door and I make it, it's okay. If they want to go, I don't take it personal and yep. you know, just pretend like you got a cell phone call and head out the door and we're, you know, we're going to have somebody follow you and ask you, you know, and check in with you later. Cause that's important. I don't want somebody going up to their hotel room and dwelling on what I'm saying. You know, they got my phone number and I'm more than welcome to answer any phone calls. Yeah. And I make sure that they know right at the beginning of the class, you have my business card right in front of you. Please use it. Like I may not, if I can't help you, I have a plethora of people in my network that I can, I can point you towards. And if, if it isn't something that I'm familiar with or, or not sure of right now, I have a friend that's, that's really struggling. Her husband is struggling um, and, and it's affecting her. She's, she's, I'm pretty confident she's starting to have her own PTSD because of his PTSD. And I know that that is a thing and I'm trying to help her find resources uh, because he's just not ready to get help yet. And Maybe I need to put you and him together and have a little conversation. But yeah, and that's that's the deal. You know, it's they've got to want to get help themselves. We can't force it on them. We can just give them the tools. And that's another one I get, you know, two, three years down the line, they'll call and say, wow, Scott, you were talking about that? Well, I just did that. And it's like, right. you know, how, how can we, what, what's going on? You know, when they catch it before it gets really severe. Because when I, when I got into that tailspin, I had the chief of police and the fire chief coming to my office and they sat and asked me what's going on. And I bullshitted them. 
I had that 44 Magnum in my drawer. I had lines of meth all around the shop in the drawer next to me. And I said, it's just the stress. I said, I got too much stress going on with the shop and with family. And I bullshitted them. And they seen it. They had no idea it was meth, but you know, I mean, they seen it, but I mean, thank God they did that much because at least I, I understood that, okay, somebody's noticing, but I was already in the tailspin. And I well, because I think I think you think that you're doing OK enough that nobody's noticing. And I you mentioned this before, you know, talking about folks that are reaching out. And I'm sure you can attest to this. I say this all the time is when I was in a moment of crisis, I was not able to reach out. I was not reaching out. It didn't matter if I knew that I had 10,000 people that I could reach out to in that moment. I was not going to reach out. So what I want folks to do is reach out when you can. But I want the folks on the outside of the periphery to get better at reaching in when needed. And it sounds like your police chief and your fire chief recognize that you weren't right. And, and I want folks that can hear me to think about the people in their circle. They are going to change. They change. I went from being you know, super social, super outgoing. I was the party planner. I was doing all the things. We're going to have a party for what? We're just having a party to literally isolating myself to doing nothing to the point where I couldn't even go to Target to buy deodorant. Yeah. yeah. And people had to have seen that. And, and there were very few people who reached in to be there. My, my husband took a, the brunt of it, uh, but even family, they didn't think that these things were warranting like, oh, maybe she needs help or maybe she just needs somebody to come sit with her or maybe she needs somebody to come do the dishes you know because over time depression takes its toll and you know i get criticized that my husband does a lot of the housework stuff and and it's not a matter of me wanting him to do that it's just sometimes i can't do it yeah i can't get out of my own way and he recognizes that and he's super supportive I mean, there's a lot about the education we have to start preventing you know and and getting ahead of this and talk about mental health and it make it okay to talk about it. I think the biggest thing is it's fear. I mean, you look at cancer back in the fifties, people were scared yep. of that. They wouldn't talk about cancer. Right. Now we're finally starting about talk about mental health. And I think that in a, in a strange sense, COVID really opened our eyes up to that. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And the other thing too, is we have to finish the sentence. And when I say finish the sentence, it goes back to that. It's okay to be okay. It's just not allowed to, you can't stay there, but we got to give the people the resources. And that's what I mean by finishing the sentence is because we can tell them all we want. Like, these are the things you need to watch out for, but the finishing of the sentence is these are the places where you can go to get the help. This is the kind of help that is available to you. Because I think if folks think like, oh, group therapy and sitting in a, in a, in a circle with a bunch of people and talking about my issues is, is the only thing I can do to get help. Well, that's not going to work for some people. And then the first responders, we're great. We're great at this. If one of our group needs to have a deck built, Hey, yeah. we'll be over there Saturday and Sunday. Who's bringing the beer and who's buying the pizza? Exactly. You'll spend your whole weekend over there helping somebody. Yeah. But then yeah. somebody says, I got PTSD. You know, all it takes is just to drive them to their therapy and be there when they're done, go out for lunch, let them talk and just listen. You don't have to be yeah. a therapist or anything. You just listen, you know, because the experience you have, that's the same as, you know, as that person and you're the peer you can do wonders. I mean, they'll trust you and they'll open up and it's, it's like practicing for when they do go and talk to the therapist, they can, they feel more comfortable talking about it because you know, you've, they've already practiced with you. 
Yeah. Well, Scott, this has been an amazing conversation. Like I know that this is going to change a ton of lives. If folks want to reach you, I have to wrap up. I don't want to wrap up, um, but I'm sure our paths will cross again. But if folks want to reach you and chat with you or or see what services you're providing, where do they find you? Um, they can email me at scott.geiselhart at gmail.com, which is my last name is G-E-I-S-E-L. H-A-R-T or cnncolorigain.com is my website. Okay. And, I, and everybody, everybody knows if, if they want to reach any of my guests, they can reach out to me as well. You know, for folks that have all my contact information, uh, you are on social media also, Facebook, correct? Yep. And then, okay. you know, like I said earlier, the, the program is called CN in Color Again. It talks about post-traumatic success. And Love it. I don't, I don't do a PowerPoint. I get up there and I just talk about what my experiences were. I'm not pointing fingers at anybody, not blaming anybody. I just tell about what I went through, the therapy, the recovery, and the, the amazing life that I'm living now is something I never dreamt about. And PTSD is not a death, a life or death sentence. It's, it's, right. it's an injury and it should be treated like an injury, just like a broken leg. Right. Yeah. If you, if you hurt your back on, on the scene of a call, or if you, you know, run over your toe and dispatch rolling across the floor, it's an injury. And then you have to go to the doctor, yeah. right? You have to go get yourself a checkup from the neck up. And, and I hope that this podcast resonates with some folks to get them to reach out um, to, to one of us if needed, or to find some mental health resources in their area. And I know that I can help folks find resources in their area. Um, I have a little system that I use to find therapists in your area that do EMDR. So please reach out, uh, tldridge at onscenefirst.com. And Scott, I'm sure that you are able to help folks find some help in their area too, right? Yep. Lots of content. All right. Well, thank you again so much. I am so glad that you are still here and sharing your story. Uh, I have I have a strange feeling our paths are going to cross at some point, whether it's in the air, in the airport, at a conference somewhere. Uh, but I can't wait to uh, to meet you in person someday and, and share Sounds a meal. Sounds good. I'd enjoy that. Thank you.